If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Are we recording? Mm -hmm. Oh, we are good to go. Okay. I mean, <laughs> we're having a conversation. Where am I looking? You're looking at me. We're having okay. a conversation. Okay. Um, okay, good. Now camera's on you. But if I annoy you at any point and you're like, you don't want to make eye contact anymore, you obviously can cheat out. Good morning. Hi, Isaac. I'm beyond honored to have you here. Thank you. You know, I've been pursuing this interview for quite some time. We did a link up in like... 2019 over the phone for yes, paper magazine exactly but then we saw each other recently and met in person for the first time and then i was able to land you here and you are just a huge part of my falling in love with the world of fashion but i'm also a big fan of you in an interview setting as well so i look forward to this both to celebrate uh someone i admire but also someone that i find really interesting as a human being. I'm happy to be here and excited. And I'm glad we finally linked up. Me too, me too. I was doing my deep dive today and it occurred to me that there's a very famous article that was written about you by Kathy Horn that appeared in the New York Times Magazine that is celebrating its 20th anniversary. February 2004 is when the article was first written. So 20 years ago, that article came out. I reread it today. It's a terrific piece of writing. You don't get, I was going to say fashion journalism. You don't really get a lot of journalism quite like that today. I want to get your response to that piece, but I wanted to read a section if you don't mind. Sure. Just, just briefly. Okay. And again, this is the prolific Kathy Horn. The title of the article is A Little Bit Adorable. In it, she writes, quote, I thought then and I think now that Zach Posen is an operator. He's a little bit adorable and a little bit awful. Words I once used in reference to Arnold 
Sakasi? Sakasi. Sakasi. There we go. Sakasi. During his Bush fascination days. But I've also come to the conclusion that of all the young designers gathering on the horizon, Posen is the one who is most likely to break through precisely because he possesses all the same qualities that worked so beautifully for his predecessors in this venal industry. Success in fashion is one part talent, one part luck, and one part a tireless ability to hold a gaudy marquee over your head. Posen has all of these qualities in excess. That is remarkable to have written about you, but especially at the beginning of your career. How do you look back on that article? I know I have a feeling it stays in you. I mean, that's good research. Um, At that point in my career, I had already had a press, personal, and creative relationship with Kathy Horn for like three or four years and, you know, was reviewed, fortunately, from my first runway collection. And on my first runway collection, not only did she give me a lot of space in print in the Times, she also critiqued front row of my show And so it was this really interesting dialogue and rapport I had with her because she was taking the clothing seriously, but it was also at the beginning of a real change in fashion that I was really attuned to uh, in terms of how media was going to interact into the old system. Mm -hmm. And the system was about to change. It hadn't yet. I entered fashion at a time when serious journalism covered fashion. Having celebrities at your front row was a faux pas. Having theatricality on a runway show was like scary and challenging to the New York system. Yes. Having women of different age, of different heights, I mixed it all. And although there was a vision about an idea of building a company or a brand, It was survival, actually, and absolutely um, uncalculated and by the seat of our pants. So when this article happened, I don't believe I had taken a private equity investor yet. But to the front world, it seemed very star shining, Mm -hmm. which it was. uh, But there was no serious financial backing at all. And it, it was pretty scary was the reality and so when that article came out and I think it was just all way too overwhelming I remember being like really angry and hurt by that article at the time and the build-up to it I'll just say which is not online in the research was that the New York Times had commissioned Alex Katz the artist I don't know if that's there to like paint no, my but portrait I know story. Yeah, you were not pleased with that portrait. You like his landscape work, but you didn't like the work. That I he didn't did. like this portrait yeah. of me particularly. I loved the experience with him. It just it was a strange portrait. It was a very smart article. Uh, I'd already kind of lived through many fashion hits, is what I would say at the time. Well, it's interesting you mention that because in the Vogue review of your spring 2003 show, mm-hmm. it begins by saying Zach Posen is entering the make or break stage of his career. The yeah, stakes were high. Yeah, but this is crazy because I think this is your second or third show. Yeah. And you have an esteemed publication like Vogue already speaking about this high wire act that you're on. 
Whereas you look at a, a lot of the young talent being cultivated today here in New York, and I think there's a care and a fragility in how they get spoken about in an effort to bolster them and help give them the lengthy runway before takeoff. Well, I hope that's there for young creators. It seems that way from my perspective. I mean, I'm always singing the praises of creative incubation. I came to fashion from a very pure, creative place. It, it came from a place about women's character, and I fell in love with fashion through expression, cut of clothing, but also a theatricality of when I was entering fashion and what was happening in fashion at that time. Um, 1996 was one of the greatest years of fashion. I mean, that was I was probably 16 or 15 at that time, and it was happening. I mean, you have John Galliano, Alexander McQueen at Givenchy. Uh, you have Vivian Westwood doing some of her best work. Christian Lacroix, Olivia Teskin, Isimiyaki. And I was in New York starting to intern in fashion. I had made a transition from musical, a choice of musical theater, and had ended up in the costume shop. And that entered into fashion and crossed and blurring all that line. But that's what brought me into that. And I brought that back to New York. Mm -hmm. I'm going full circle how we're tying this back in here. And I went to Central St. Martin's in London and came to New York with this, which was not what New York fashion, New York fashion kind of at that moment had found its footing in this idea of a white catwalk. I was quickly zapped in a sense. I would say very young in terms of my level of expression. Yeah, I mean, so when that article happened, it was really scary. I thought that was a make or break article. Mm -hmm. Kathy had a very important voice. And there definitely were personal jabs in there, but she what retrospectively and many years after that of many reviews of Kathy and obviously a creative and professional rapport with her, you know, is understanding that she wouldn't even give it that kind of coverage if the work wasn't there. Absolutely. And that's kind of the takeaway now. And I think it's pretty poignant. Absolutely poignant and a very great read. I mean, we gave it a lot of room just now. But anyhow, interesting piece. I mean, that was an important piece in, in my life for a long time. And I think it connects the dots in a lot of ways. And I think it almost seems so obvious to state, but so much of what you're speaking about from, you know, I believe, was it the first collection you did that was at the Lower East Side yeah. Temple? Yes. I mean, there was just a collection from New York Fashion Week this last season that showed at a synagogue and got a ton of press solely because of that location. Or when you were speaking about assembling celebrities at the front row. So much of what you were doing then is being done now to so much praise. In fact, it is the norm. If not the norm, it is the expectation. Thank you. Been waiting um, for somebody to say that. So on that note, speaking to, I <laughs> sure. think it's the spring 2003 show, okay. in attendance at that show, in the front row, yeah. was Julianne Moore, your friend Julianne Moore, and your friend Natalie Portman. Is it fair to call Natalie Portman a muse of yours at one point? Absolutely. Okay. She's Flash. my Judy Garland. Work. I was her Mickey. Flash forward to today, we have May, December. These two stars that assembled 20 plus years ago at your show in this film. Have you seen May, December? I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I will. Okay. I just found it so interesting. There are no photos of the two of them from that show. I dug deep to try oh, to find. Oh, there definitely are. There are? Yeah. But I bring this up to say that you have these two Golden Globe nominees right now that are hot to trot. I mean, they always are, but they're having a huge moment right now. And you look back 20 plus years ago and where were they? They were at Zach Posen's show. And that was not out of the norm. This is where the celebrities assembled. I believe I heard you speak in an interview about Liza Minnelli attending one of your shows, coming backstage and saying to you, Mama would have loved this. 
That alone is iconography, but the fact that she felt that way, too, is iconography. Yeah, that's kind of, I was kind of, that was it. Yeah. I mean, there's a few key moments for me. I mean, definitely Liza Minnelli and an instant kind of understanding. I am deeply raised on her mom's music. You know, that started an understanding and a, and a friendship. Wow. Good friend to have. The best. When you started assembling these celebrities front row, they come backstage, you have... The critics telling you you're amazing. You have so, not always, but often, right? You have the press, you have celebrities, I'm sure people on the street, et cetera. How did you metabolize so much feedback at that early stage of your career of people from the jump putting you on this pedestal? Obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure from that, but how did it feel for you at the time? Every day was a, you know, it was a new circus show. Every day was a photo shoot pretty much in the studio every day were major fittings for new collections being made people coming through the studio I mean it was kind of how did I process it I just was in it mm -hmm. right it was mm -hmm. it was continuous adrenaline of an amazing family that was in it with me but that's also really grounding but there was always the reality of the survival you know it was like living in theater mm -hmm. it was live theater I became at a really early age pre-internet like something that tabloids like it entered that place and that was really crazy too yeah. to understand to reach that level and i i mean that's not something i understood or expected or and it was that was scary there's an article i found on the intelligencer i think it's from like 2009 i'm that's sure you, later right but i'm sure you were just randomly pulled aside at a party or something but it's like the headline is like it's about you commenting on the sex in the windows at the standard and like the visibility of people having sex. Oh, I don't know. I probably was being provocative. Yeah, but it, it's just an example of the fact yeah. that like any old thing becomes a headline and that's not the case with just I would designer. be like in, I remember at the time I'd be in like the New York Post that I was like out at a nightclub dancing on tables and I wouldn't be. I'd uh -huh. be like, I was like literally at home and this was like consecutive. It'd yeah, be yeah. like this kind of thing. Was there like a lookalike? Uh -huh. I have to say, I think considering my head was on pretty straight and mm -hmm. tight. Like, uh, I kind of understood the game, mm -hmm. right? And I definitely have that performative, provocative side. And I knew how to play it. Like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dance, a theatricality yeah. play of it. And if this was going to help support me build my creative vision and a business behind it to also help support a community of people that I was building. Because mm -hmm. I was building a real community of artisans in my studio that I was responsible for their livelihood. Which is a big weight at any age, but especially so at such a young age. So, you know, you mentioned your head on straight and tight. At 21 years old, my head was not on straight and tight. I was here. I was going to Splash. I was going to Mary Poppins I wish on I had Broadway. Been. Do you feel like you were able to have that formative time in your early 20s of going out? Like, did you have a non-work life at that time? Or was the work so pressurized that it sort of took over that time of your life entirely. No, I definitely did not have my 20s. It w I did not have the freedom that I think a lot of people have in their early 20s. Mm -hmm. And I think that I kind of was overprotective of myself. Would you describe yourself as a serious person? Oh, yeah. I'm really <laughs> kidding me. I, I, I think I'm a serious person. That I'm very playful. I was going to say because I would, too, would describe you as a very I'm serious intense. person. You are intense, um, but you're also, there's a whimsy about you that is not present in a lot of people I typically ascribe seriousness around. So it's interesting. 
Yeah, probably. I mean, you Playful. probably go into like some astrological sign uh-huh. thing of like what it. that is. I was going to say, a lot of people with the astrological st- stuff, because I don't follow any of that, and I'll be somewhere sometimes, and they'll ask me what I am, and I'll tell them, and they'll be like, oh, that's why you're whatever. And I'm like, don't don't put that on me. Like, you, you like I'm who I am. I, it's exactly. Not, you can do your charts, but don't tell me that. Like, And then they'll start to say, like, see patterns in my, and I'm like, okay. The okay. pattern. Yeah, like, <laughs> n- not that. Okay, so that was some dip dive. What that, else? Yeah, well, let's talk musical theater, though, because, you know, you mentioned your interest in costume design in yeah. theater, but I imagine at an even younger age, you, when you were first discovering musical theater, the art form itself really opened up to you. Let's start. Top five best musicals. Whoa, that's impossible. Top five? I can't even pick them because there's for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. Like, there's personal musicals. There's musicals I've watched, mm-hmm. right? Like roles I've played. I mean, my favorite role altogether was Artful Dodger. Started as an Oliver, ended up into Dodger, uh-huh. which was like a really fun role for me to play. Sunday in the Park with George is the first show I saw on Broadway on a matinee as a very young child. I don't, you know, I probably slept through part of it, but I fell in love with Bernadette Peters. So that holds a very special part in my heart, as well as having a father who is a painter and understanding from an early age through this show what I was experiencing from somebody who lived for their art and understanding that. So that really just in a very serious, on the serious side of stuff, really cut through. I was going to say a serious show, but the character of Dot, she kind of injects some fun. And tragedy and And sadness and cutting. But sure, there was definitely like a beautifully, you know, kind of exaggerated uh, turn of the century dress and, you know, powder puff moment in a great corset. Louie, the song Louie is quite, quite fun. It's fun and then dark. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's like like, I can't have what I want. And so I walked out of that show (laughs) and could recite the music and songs and it was just in me. And that's when, you know. I had that Sondheim cut through moment yeah. into my life, uh, which was also followed by Into the Woods. You know, and it was so beautifully designed. I mean, I always loved costume and set design. And what I would do, I would take all these show, little night music, uh, and I would stage them with my cousins, with parents, you know, with younger friends of mine. And I became the director, right? I was able to direct them. Or I would use my figurines and my Shira dolls and dress them up. And would make small maquette theaters in my room. And that's how I played. Uh-huh. Like the turntable was uh, the top of a fan. I had my scrims. The humidifier was the fog machine. Okay. So no G.I. Joes for Zach Posen. Not really. <laughs> no. Unless they were like flea market. No. Is there a costume in the canon of musical theater that for you is just... The girl. I'll give you a for instance, as you think. I just saw this Stephen Schwartz concert, so I've had Wicked on the Brain. And I was just thinking recently, I mean, I obviously love the costumes in Wicked, but I particularly love the texture of Alphaba's final dress, the no good deed dress, when she's fully accepted her status as Mm -hmm. the Wicked Witch of the West. Like the ruffles are in the Mm -hmm. right play. And the way that that costume (laughs) hits the light. So it's, I think Susan Hilferty did the costumes, Kenneth Posner did the lights. The way that those lights are able to work with the costume and then the changing of the light color changes the color of all of that to me is just formative yeah i mean i was a little older at that point but That's like okay but okay yes adult form as we said like it's okay thank you i really think this is like this is permission cre- it's permission to say that live art 
filmmaking, like as we talked about, like early fashion shows and like the rules of the system. F them. Okay. Are there there formative moments for that? I mean, I think that Bernadette Peters as the reprise in the Ever After Act One finale of Into the Woods was like a really major moment. It's an off the shoulder major, you know, Bernadette in in all her full incredible figure. You know, it was just like that was it. It was 30s, 40s, Victoriana, fairy tale land. It had that same quality mm-hmm. to me. Okay. The depths of gay of this conversation are right huge. Now. I also want to start one thing too. 80s, things were darker, right? Like I'm raised on the dark crystal and things were like scary, like scary kid stuff was real and it was there. And that kind of macabre glam genre really spoke to me Mm -hmm. you know wood nymph fairy wing darkness and that was part of our childhood Mm -hmm. and that was very formative aesthetically absolutely would you campaign to bring that era back i would i would that campaign takes a big checkbook Mm -hmm. because i don't think that that world can always be captured digitally anymore by AI. You know, that world was very championed by great Imagineers, by the incomparable legend Jim Henson, hugely, who was very culturally influential. And that takes a great level of producers and studios investing in art department and investing in costume technique and building that actually physically, claymation, stop motion. Creating fantasy imagination out of tangible things is something that I feel so fortunate to have been part of the end of that moment into the transition into digital. Same way I feel sad about like actual reviews. Let's talk about investment in costumes and have that be the transition sure. into feud, colon, capote. Yes. Is it versus the swans or V the swans? I like saying V the swans. I know it's versus. It's versus, but we could say V the swans. Could also be an and, but you know, it, it's not. Yeah. It seems very V from the episodes I've seen. Love and hate are, are, can be very close. <laughs> they get <laughs> indeed. So this is the second season of Ryan Murphy's acclaimed anthology series. I want to focus in on episode three, which was directed by the Gus Vincent. Talk about formative for gays of our age. Uh, what a man. Uh, written by the great John Robin Bates. And for those that don't know, this episode depicts what is known as the black and white ball. Correct. The black and white ball, which is a real event. Also a very formative cultural event. Also, random fun fact of connective thread here. I believe that Demi Moore, who appears in this show, is an old friend of yours, so much so that you have a colorway at one point that you named after Absolutely her. We do. Demi Moore Blue. Demi Moore Blue. Good research. Wow. A Neiman Marcus bestseller. Mm, I don't doubt it. It's deeper and richer than a cerulean. Mm. <laughs> Talk to me about how you got involved in this project. Okay. I've known Gus since my early 20s. I first met him on one of my first trips out for the Oscars in LA. I met Ryan years ago just kind of he wanted to meet me and wanted to know what I wanted to do and ideas of casting you know and he was just throwing it out there and maybe my subculture pop culture love you know and maybe like both being like intense dreamer Scorpios that connected there and that was kind of it and then two years ago I guess now or a year and a half ago two years ago in the summer not last summer, the summer before, 
Gus, who I've had over the years became friends with, and I'm really a fan of him as a fine artist. And Gus said, I'm coming to New York. You know, I'd love to see you. I said, come for dinner. What are you doing here? I'm scouting for this show. I'm thinking about doing uh, about Truman Capote and his ladies at the time, the Swans. And, you know, I, I thought that's surprising. It's not like the subject matter that I immediately would associate with Gus. And immediately I said, well, uh, if there's going to be gowns, and I didn't know what time period this was going to take place, right? I didn't know if it was going to be at the ladies. I didn't know it was feud. You know, I said, if you're going to make Charles James gowns, like, please, I have time right now. I don't have my company. I don't design for Zach Pose and the brand. Like, I'm a one-man show. I can do this for you really well. I'd love to work with you. And then he said, Ryan. I said, I'd love to work with Ryan. Then he kind of corrected me about the time period that the show was taking place, right? And I started going into my depth of research. You know, I love social history. Uh, I like this time period. The, these are great inspiration, these ladies of style, when kind of the old world met what we feel is contemporary today. It's a period of time that I think I probably would have existed fine in. So I started sending him these photos of Truman Capote really looking destroyed and really, you know, sad and insane, basically, uh, with CZ Guest at, like, at Studio 54. And then I was, like, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then I saw Ryan. I ran into Ryan. And I said, Ryan, like, I want to do this. And he said, well, let's have you do the black and white ball. And all of a sudden, I had, like, a week in a sense. I'd kind of been, like, lightly prepping. But then I was like, is this not going to happen? I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't know what the, uh, you know, what is the menu going to be? You like a food metaphor. Well, I wrote a cookbook. <laughs> I wrote a cookbook. So, yeah, of course. I mean, listen, we all eat. Totally. Or we all Didn't mean to derail. That's okay. Um, so that that's kind of, how, I mean, it really came from that idea. And, and I had assembled an enormous amount of research. And then I really, like, had, like, a week or two to kind of, put together this proposal. I got called to set finally. And I had gone into real deep research. I mean, one bio to the next bio to the next one. And the stories are are totally different and start to change. So it's like, how do you collect as a researcher history? What was apparent was that this was the really first large media covered social event that combined whoever Truman decided he wanted to invite, which were who was important socially that he, in his world that respected him. And then people he thought were interesting in Hollywood. It was all mixing. It was also televised. And I was able through this experience uh, through a friend of a friend found a VHS wow. of the entrances of the ball, which I brought to production. Uh, and I just went like crazy. I went down to matching fabrics uh, going into like the last silk flower place in New York, you know, trying to find the research of what, you know, hats or masks Roy Halston would have made for this. And then I had to interpret each lady and character that was given to me. Mm -hmm. I kind of did this through two or three days of like sourcing, right? Because I kind of sketched three dimensionally. He wanted illustrations of like these fashion illustrations. And I said, why don't I just like build you half of each of these looks? Right. And because I think that's a really interpretation. So I did that. And it was like, you know, it's like three dimensional draping and collage because I just like to get my hands dirty and like build. And that's really 
you ask like what brings me happiness or peace or you haven't yet but you might later do you want me to <laughs> i'll answer it for you and and that's that i'm in my creative moment when i have my music going and i'm my pins are flying scissors that's where i feel good truly same way as like when i'm cooking and that's my comfort happy place and so i presented them like two days after thanksgiving i kind of did a presentation i had a projection of swans swimming by on water over these drapings and each one you know was there it was Callista as Lee Raswell it was Naomi as Babe it was Chloe as CZ and Molly and Demi and all the ladies I don't think I'm forgetting any uh diane lane and diane lane as slim keith by the way like a moment just for the assemblage of this star power in this show it was unbelievable so i had padded the mannequins all to their measurements or carved away when needed to right because i think let's start on their body forms because my process is i drape these and then i pass them off and then ryan came in and said well you know he loved them and he said but i didn't hire you to recreate history <laughs> and i thought what and he said, this has to be elevated. This is not a historical recreation show. I thought, oh my gosh, you know what I'm going to do? And it was the greatest creative challenge moment that I've had in a long time. And it was great. And so I had to kind of rethink of this and like up it and think about modern day expectation of theatricality and understand the balance between this being, yes, in a historic setting, and wanting to feel respectful and in sync to the guidance and direction productionist sets, Gus World, these incredible actors on their own, who a lot of them I have very long-standing relationships with and understanding their relationship and role to costuming, and then it being Ryan Murphy's ball, in essence, within Truman Capote's ball, within that world and finding that balance. I knew that I was like, that person in that moment and so I delved even deeper into it and found this fine balance between history and places where these historic ladies outfits weren't recorded historically and I'm forgetting one very important component here which is Ryan put a camera on me and said let's let's document this process of the making of these dresses and so he made these short format documentary of the making of these costumes that will come out in some format with the show good i think that's important because sort of landing the plane here yeah to our earlier discussion of your seriousness as a human being it's that same seriousness that you bring to your work and i think it's why so many people connect to you and the work that you've provided us with these last couple of decades and that seriousness you know you mentioned the research but even talking about you know, rather than sketching, presenting these 3D models and, and then starting with the actresses and, and draping around them. All of this thought pattern is not evident in so much of the landscape today. And so I think I want to both highlight and celebrate the fact that Thank you. you exist and that we have you. And also I want to tip my hat to people like Ryan Murphy and Gus Van Sant who, who understand your vision and understand the importance of helping to execute that vision. It was a huge opportunity. Yes. I mean, Gus and Ryan... Pretty cool, I have to say. Yeah. And like, and Lou too. Yeah, but you're pretty cool. One goes in and out of waves of popularity within uh, a public career, right? Yeah. And 
hits your high or low. I mean, this is part of it, right? And that's also it makes it exciting. It's part of American culture. It's part of kind of media in Hollywood. And that's something that I and the historical place really thrive off of. And Ryan does too. And it's pretty cool for him to give me this amazing platform and opportunity and to have the guidance of Lou in there as well. Mm -hmm. And knowing that it's going to be through kind of the cool lens and sophisticated lens of Gus with incredible writing with friends. I felt because costuming and glamour and creation of that is so important at this pinnacle moment. Yes. I mean, people say Truman Capote, they know breakfast at Tiffany's and they know the black and white ball. Those are, you know, and if they're literary, they know in cold blood, but there's a deeper depth to that. And so I I felt like there was a really, this was like a really big task at hand. I'm also friendly with Ann Roth and Ann Roth had worked on costumes of a Truman film where the black and white ball sadly was totally cut out. She worked on this ball scene. So I just knew there was like deep history Mm -hmm. within the recreation of this ball. It's part of cultural zeitgeist, and I think that was interesting and mythology. Absolutely. And the truth of the matter is, apparently, it was a real bore. I feel like often a lot of hype things. I mean, I think the Italians, Morella and Yelly, who's not in the show as a character. That's why when we say, like, there's elements here or not, you know, it was like, uh uh-uh, they were out. They were like, they flew in. They did the big dinner before. People had, like, pre-parties for this. They hint at that in the show, right? Like, what a boring party at the end of the day. Or felt stiff. Or hard, you know, not a, whatever. Yeah. We had fun. Seeing that scene being filmed on set is something I'm going to take with me for the rest of my life. Um, the build up to it in like a week and a half to two weeks of these fittings with these incredible artists was really formative. Major changes were made on garments. The drama was there. Um, I don't feed into that drama. In those moments, I am try to be very creatively quick on my toes and I'm here to make a performer feel their ultimate confidence Mm -hmm. and no one to be able to push them in levels of theatricality and make them feel comfortable in it. This has to function even if it's for a split second on set. And that was really fun. These could have been a fashion show and maybe it is. We'll see. We will see. I didn't get to talk about the Met Gala. I didn't get to talk about House of Z. We can There's... do it quickly. We can do okay, like the... Well, I do want to... Let's end on this Met Gala's been my own black and white ball for many years. Oh like, God. that's been... I feel... You know, I was an intern at the Met. It's close to home. I feel very part of the history of the making of that, for good or for bad, for what it's for become. Good. I well, think oh, for oh. good because, <laughs> um, you Different know... But I love that this ups... You know, people can roll their eyes... You know, and I think grease paint and a costume that links between high fashion, absurd, why not? I mean, maybe it will look like, you know, the end of Rome one day to look back at it. But maybe there's great creative moments that spark imagination in somebody looking at that, even if it's on on Instagram or on a scroll or social media. And I know that I've had some moments in my career that have done that. And then that is what I live for. 
Yeah, you've had quite a few. Okay. But on that, I, I just want to end. So, you know, you mentioned your cookbook earlier, yep. right? We're talking about the costume design you're doing with Capote now. And this is in addition to so many other sort of, I don't know if you want to call them side ventures that you've had throughout your career. I'm thinking about creative director of Brooks Brothers, designer of the uniforms for Delta Airline, judge on Project Runway, uh, designer of a collection for David's Bridal. So there are so many sort of ways in which your career has deviated from the norm of a fashion designer, which is, I think, kind of the most exciting place to be. I'm feeling very recognized uh -huh. on this talk. Thank you. We're in 2024 right now. Yeah. And so as we look ahead and we start to say, okay, you've checked off all of these boxes of things you maybe never even imagined and came to be. Is there something if you wanted to put out there? Because I'm a big, I'm not into Zodiac, but I am into energy. If I'm into to, energy If you too. were to energetically put something out here for the year. And I have to say, in this time with you, there's a lot of energy that you possess right now. I feel you are in a very powerful place. I'm, I'm not putting this on. This is how I feel about you. I felt it about you when I saw you several months ago mm -hmm. as well. I, I gravitate yeah. towards that energy. What are we putting out there? We're putting out there to change the world. And on that, thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.